And uh, with that being said, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter number 8. Matthew chapter number 8. And we'll be looking at the end of Matthew 8 and into Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to try to cover quite a bit of ground this morning. But uh, all these three stories that we're going to see kind of go together along with the opening that uh, starts in verse number 18. And uh, I think you'll see the flow there. So we'll try to make sense of it all. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing what God has for us today. Uh, there was a man named Bernard. He was born in Queens, New York in 1938. Uh, Bernard was a financial wizard. Uh, he, found, he founded his own stock brokerage at age 22 um, in 1960. And at one point, Bernard's company was the largest market maker, they call it, in the NASDAQ, and the sixth largest market maker in the S&P. Bernard was a huge success, uh, and thousands of people used his services to build their personal wealth, their retirement, their savings, etc. By the late 90s, though, things began to smell a little bit fishy to some of the other financial experts in the field. And just exactly how Bernard's numbers were so good was becoming suspect. Well, Bernard's success came crashing down in the year 2008 when, after a crisis, he admitted to his own son, it's all a lie and I have nothing left. Well, in March of 2009, Bernard, or Bernie Madoff, as you've probably heard of him, pleaded guilty to 11 charges of federal felony, uh, most of which had to do with fraud. At the fall of his Ponzi scheme, the amount of loss to current investors totaled around $18 billion. And if you weren't personally affected by the Madoff Ponzi scheme fraud, you probably know somebody who was. Throughout the years, thousands of people trusted their, high, their hard work and their hard-earned dollars to his company to secure their investments, their retirements, their dreams, their families' futures. Now, as all Ponzi schemes work, some people made out fine, but many lost everything, including one of my college professors, who I remember to this day saying that there are many ways to harm a man, but to defraud him of his family's security and future is a bitter blow. Now, maybe you're no financial wizard and not an investor. Um, I, I stay away from those things and let other people do it for me. Um, maybe your life savings is tucked away in a, in a mattress or a hole in the wall, um, and that's fine. But if, if you've been down this road we call life for any amount of time, there's a pretty good chance that you have faced some kind of fraud, or we might call it betrayal. Somebody makes a promise that they can't and don't intend to keep. It's for their benefit, and it always costs dearly to almost everybody except them. That's why we think prudently about major decisions, about purchases, investments, agreements, contracts, and commitments. That's why lawyers and legal aids earn a good living uh, fraud-proofing fraud business contracts and loans and mortgages. It's why when you go to buy a house, you have to sign your life away and your wrist away for about two hours because all this stuff's got to be clear as mud, at least to us, but it's all fraud-proofed. It cuts to the heart when you're betrayed, and it stings when it's financial, but it stings worse if it's personal. 
betrayal by a friend, a loved one, a parent, a child, a spouse. It embitters and calluses even, even the most tender of people. Betrayal wounds in ways that affects the affections. And a betrayed person might never live or love the same way again. Now, I live in a generation and come from a generation where fear of commitment is sort of endemic. Uh, Marriage is in decline. Average length of employment is in decline. Length of residency is in decline. And there are a myriad of reasons for this, but I think largely it's because people have seen their parents or their grandparents defrauded in many ways, and it, it detracts from trust. When someone asks for a commitment, they're asking for trust. They're asking for follow-through, which is hard to come by. Well, in our passage today, Jesus makes some of the boldest pleas and claims for commitment that any leader or, or entrepreneur or or person in general can make. He, he makes statements that really seem to drive followers away. There's no sweet talk. There's no sugarcoating. There's, there's honesty. There's sort of a bald confrontation. Jesus, we find in this passage today, wants followers who are sold out, so to speak. He demands an investment that's far more valuable than money or time, but an investment of the whole life. We're going to be in Matthew again, but I want to read a parallel passage from Luke 9 to give us a little insight. Luke 9, verses 57 and following, says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's, again, a parallel to our opening passage today. And I'll be honest, those, those are sharp words. If you had that kind of conversation with a, a prospective employer, uh, I imagine you would hightail it and make a beeline for the door as quickly as you'd possible. You'd say, that guy is nuts. But Jesus makes these claims on his disciples' lives honestly. But as we'll see today, there is a reason he can do that. Because unlike Bernie Madoff, who defrauded thousands of honest people out of their savings, Jesus intends to, is committed to, and is fully able to deliver on every promise that he makes. So yes, he wants followers who are sold out, but he backs his claims on our lives, on your life and on mine, by his power and authority. We'll see today that Jesus' power and authority encompasses all things, including our lives, our time, and our resources. He has authority to calm seas and forgive sins. And the question is, is he your Lord? 
Is he your Lord? Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we jump into the text this morning. Father, thank you for your word, how it lives and abides forever. Thank you that it is applicable and, uh, and meaningful to our lives, both now uh, as it was when it was spoken and written. Thank you that Jesus does more than just make claims, but he follows through. And may we see that today. May we see a glimpse, oh God, of who you are, of your character, of your goodness, of your being. And may we reckon with it in our own hearts and minds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we'll start with one warning, and then we're going to go to three examples. One warning, and then three examples. Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 8, verse 18. It reads this. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, as we already read from Luke, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Matthew gives us just two instances out of the three that Luke records, uh, two prospective disciples instead of three, and the scene is set with Jesus getting ready to cross over the Sea of Galilee, something that we're going to see him do quite a few times and a couple times just in our passage today. And as he was getting ready to depart, these men come to him and indicate that they want to, they're, they're willing to follow him. And the response that can be summed up is this. There is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to discipleship. You may notice we have a bulletin. I've given you a few blanks today, and uh, that's, I think, one of them. There is a cost to discipleship. It is not always without trouble to follow Jesus. There is a lifetime of commitment to a Savior who doesn't promise ease or lack of trouble, but he does promise life beyond the trouble. As we read the text, uh, there was one person who, he seemed eager to follow Jesus. He says, look, I will follow you wherever you go. But as soon as he said that, Jesus kind of quells his earnestness with homelessness. Another showed willingness but with apprehension, and Jesus called his bluff by examining his priorities. The authority of Jesus, which we saw, again, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we saw it in the three miracles, the three healings last week. Uh, the, the authority of Jesus kind of takes on another hue today, which is why I titled the message Jesus in Full View, because in the dialogue and in these subsequent miracles, we begin to see an even fuller picture of who Jesus is. We've seen his authority in teaching. We've seen his power in healing. But here, first off, in his conversation, Jesus extends his authority to personal matters, a claim on life and time. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, the scribe said. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. In fact, it's one of the only uh, titles that he consistently uses of himself. Um, And he uses it here to sort of set himself apart, to indicate that there's a tie from who he is to back in the Old Testament. We saw that uh, title in the book of Ezekiel, but it's a messianic title that we see in Daniel as well. And he says, the Son of Man, or I, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. So this guy is eager, and he's probably honest. You know, he's he's probably seen these miracles. He's seen the wonders that Jesus can do, and he says, I'll follow you anywhere. This has got to be good. But Jesus is even more brutally honest. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Might not be all it's cracked up to be in the here and now. Jesus was an itinerant teacher. He traveled from place to place. He made his home base in Capernaum, but he never had a home. He, he stayed with friends, family members of, of the disciples, but he was essentially a wanderer, homeless among his own people, the Lord of the universe without even a cottage to claim on the earth. The life of following Jesus is not a promise of wealth or prosperity, and I have to say anyone who says otherwise is selling you a bill of goods. Commitment to Jesus in no way secures immediate gain, but the eternal gain is what outshines the rest. While many ways of life have financial success as a major goal, kind of the one of the one of the categories of the American dream, you might say, the commitment to to following Jesus disrupts the normal goals of life. This brings really to life teachings that we've seen already, teachings like this one from Matthew 6, where Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The next man is also willing, but shows some apprehension. And his first claim, what Jesus says here, it doesn't seem to go together because what what this guy says seems reasonable, seems understandable. Let me first go bury my father. Bereavement was just as tragic then as it is today. And and probably the, the festivities that, that took place in those days were, were even more time-consuming than our modern funerals and celebrations of life. Anytime a loved one is lost, especially a parent, there's intense mourning. It, it's a bitter part of, of human experience, and only the coldest of hearts don't give way to that experience. So when Jesus responds, let the dead bury their own dead, it seems at first glance intensely rude. Now, if you've been a churchgoer for any number of years or a Bible student for any length of time, you've probably heard the explanation that most likely this man's father wasn't even dead yet. He was sort of waiting for him to die. And I've always heard that, and I've always wondered if that was true. Why do people say that? Well, it turns out that in Israel, the, the dead were required to be buried on the same day that they'd passed away. So if this man's father had just died as a son, he would not have even been in the crowd surrounding Jesus. He would have 
been attending to his solemn duties of burying his father. And if that's the case, then it seems that, that Jesus didn't really have patience for a follower who wanted to just wait around for his father to die. Now, you might be able to speculate and take it a little bit further. Some think that maybe, just maybe, there was an inheritance at stake for this man, and he might have been thinking, I'm going to wait for my ship to come in, and then I'll give my life to following this teacher. Either way, either way, from other places we know that Jesus knew minds and hearts, and he clearly knew that this man's heart was not there yet. It needed challenging. It needed waking up. The honest confrontation of whether or not the kingdom of God would be of utmost importance to him was something he had to reckon with. As we read in Luke's gospel, Jesus said to him, go proclaim the kingdom of God. That's the priority right now. Let the dead bury their own dead is usually understood as a call saying, let those who are unconcerned with my kingdom care for the things of this world. This business is superior. And throughout the centuries, beginning with Jesus' own disciples, many have heeded that warning and taken serious that claim. And if we're honest with the demands, Jesus' words, they still do cut sharply, even if they're tempered back a little bit by that cultural insight. But the cares of the world are many. But the question is, are they more important? Are they more important than our walk with Christ, than the kingdom of God? Will we neglect the Lord of the universe for lesser things? Now, within the calls of Jesus are calls to honor parents, to love one another, and to care for one another. So discipleship is not carelessness. It's, it's not crass and cold-heartedness, but it is an honest and forthright commitment. And Jesus makes a claim on the priorities of his people. But Jesus is no Bernie Madoff. Jesus can and will back up that claim. Which is where we go next, as we see three examples. Just like last week, we saw a little bit of teaching and a, and a triplet of miracles. This week, we see the same thing. Uh, we see a little bit of teaching and then three miracles. Interestingly, after we saw Jesus claim that discipleship is costly, we find that each of these three miracles includes some kind of opposition or some kind of difficulty in Jesus' ministry. We see first a storm, uh, very picturesque of life's challenges. We see an angry crowd in the next section demanding that Jesus leave, sort of a picture of his rejection. And we see Jewish leaders accuse him of blasphemy. And in each difficulty, two things are true. Jesus is victorious, and he's, he miraculously overcomes, but the opposition is still very real and still very difficult. So there is a cost to discipleship, but Jesus' authority transcends the cost. It transcends the cost. The first example we see is authority over the elements. Authority over the elements. Let's pick it up in verse number 23. Earlier, Jesus had said, I want to go into a boat and cross over. Now it says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, 
there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? You remember back in Matthew 4, we saw the calling of the first disciples, and it was two sets of brother, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And do you remember their occupation? They were both sets of fishermen. And uh, there's a reason why Matthew tells us that. And I think this miracle may be one of the reasons, because here is Jesus in a boat surrounded by probably at least four experienced fishermen who were from that very lake, the Sea of Galilee, and they're about to be accosted by such a powerful storm that even they cry out for help. The experience that the disciples have in the boat gives a parallel to two different things. One is that the challenges of being a follower of Jesus are real, but two, it also shows who Jesus really is. In this case, the storm was not a metaphor. It's, it's a real storm. Uh, the storm is called a, a seismos, which is a fierce stirring we get the word seismic from that, which has to do usually with earthquakes. Some think that maybe this was an earthquake under the sea, which caused this raging sea. Seismos is a violent storm, and then Matthew adds the word mega to it. So it's a mega violent storm. It's pretty picturesque. And the ship or the boat was, was probably a standard fishing boat that they were used to. Uh, they found some of these things from Jesus' time that sunk in the Sea of Galilee and brought them out. And they have enough room for about 15 people or so. They're not that deep. So the notion of the boat being swamped by the waves is daunting because the boat was probably already pretty much full as it was. And where was Jesus? He's there, but he's sleeping. Now, as a man, he needed rest. In fact, he just healed three people miraculously. But also, every facet of Jesus' life teaches us about trust and obedience to God. And Jesus' personal peace here is pretty telling. Now, it brings to mind Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the ship on the way to Tarshish, only Jonah was running away from God in disobedience, but Jesus was sleeping sort of in peaceful harmony while he was doing the will of God. So back to the scene. Here's the carpenter, the, the land lover, sleeping peacefully while the fishermen are crying out for help in this mega storm. And isn't that often how Jesus leads us? All of us, all of you are, are proficient in something. Throughout your life, you've, you've learned a skill or, or a, a combination of skills that you use to either uh, make a living, to help others, to help your family, to do your hobbies, whatever. We're all proficient in one or two things. These fishermen were proficient in, in fishing and in boats in the Sea of Galilee. 
Often, though, when we feel we're in a comfort zone, we're brought through challenges that are so great that it brings us to the end of our ability, and it causes us to cry out, save us, Lord, we're perishing, just like the disciples cried out in that ship. What does Jesus say? He said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. That reminds me again from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 30, which says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? When we were in that passage a few weeks ago, I said that I don't think Jesus said, O you of little faith, uh, to rebuke sharply, but to correct lovingly. And just as Jesus said to them then, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will put on, what clothes you will wear, He says to these disciples, don't worry about the storm, whether you will live or die. And a little application here, have you ever had an oh, you of little faith moment? A moment where in seeking to go about life, following the Lord, you're met with challenges that seem too big to handle. But then almost out of the blue, the Lord provides in some unexpected way a card in the mail, a visit from a friend, a helping hand from a neighbor, a gift. And in your spirit, you hear those words, oh, you of little faith. I had one of those moments even this morning. I came into church early to polish up my notes a little bit. And uh, unexpectedly, there was an answer to prayer. And then I read this text again. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Then he arose, it says, and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. In another place, it says he spoke. He spoke to the winds and the sea and said, peace, peace. Be still. The one who created by the word of his power now shows his authority over creation. Like we read in Hebrews between the songs, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And here he's intertwined with it and tells it, hey, calm down. He literally changes the weather, calming the storm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and seas obey him? What kind of man? What kind of power? What kind of authority? Jesus, the God-man. This is Jesus in, in fuller view. Jesus in compassion and kindness and meekness, sleeping in the boat, but in power, calming the storm. So he has authority over the elements. Next we see he has authority over spiritual beings. Authority over spiritual beings. The story continues 
and uh, we're kind of thrown into another violent scene. And we pick it up in verse 28, and it says, when he came to the other side, so there they are, they've made it across. They came to the country of the Gadarenes, and two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass by that way. These men, possessed by demons, literally fallen spirits, they were so violent and so fierce, it says nobody could pass that way. I remember once uh, Lizzie and I were, were on a trip. It was right after we graduated college, and we were visiting a place in Kentucky, and there was a sort of a narrow pathway, and on both sides there were kind of flower gardens that were pretty thick, thick enough so that you couldn't walk through them. And uh, we came around a corner, and there was a mother goose with her line of goslings behind her. And uh, she was headed our way. We were headed her way. And who do you think gained right of way? Well, like the strong, masculine, fearless man that I am, I turned around and got out of her way. <laughs> uh, she was pretty fierce. She was making strange noises. And uh, you know, you could see it in her eyes, like I'm coming through there no matter what takes place here. So we'll picture here these, these gathering people never passing by this way on the road because for who knows how long, these two demon-possessed men living in the tombs were terrorizing the road. They may, have, may as well have had a road closed sign, and, and maybe they did. It says no one came by this way except Jesus. And like he entered in to the uncleanness of the leper, last week and, and touched him, he enters into the fierce terror of these demon-possessed men. This gets interesting, what they say. Behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's a pretty neat statement. It's an amazing statement because this literally is, it's, it's the demons kind of speaking through the man. And what they're saying is, and what they're telling him is remarkable because they say, oh, son of God. The disciples wouldn't realize, wouldn't come to that conclusion that Jesus is the son of God until Matthew 18. But here, these evil spirits know exactly who Jesus is, and they're not happy about his presence. They said, are you come to torment us before the day? You see, they knew that one day their reign of terror would be brought to a swift end. They knew that they and their king, the, the devil, would be brought and cast into the lake of fire. They know who Jesus is, and they tremble, like James 2 says, you believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. It's like they're saying, it's, it's not yet, it's not time yet. So they, they come up with a compromise. They said, look, there's a, there's a herd of swine. Verse 30, it says, A herd of many pigs were feeding some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. All Jesus had to say here, interestingly enough, was one word. He said to them, verse 32, Go. Go. So they came out. There's not a battle here. Uh, there's no visible war. There's, there's no doubt. There's not even hesitation. Just 
Just go, he says. Like he said to the weather, peace be still. He says to these demons, go. And they went. And went they did, right into those pigs. And it caused such a commotion in the pigs that they, they dove headlong down an embankment into the sea and drowned. And well, this, this got the attention of the town folk, as it were. Uh, people of the Gadarenes were mostly Gentiles, um, and that makes sense since they're pig farmers, and the Jews wouldn't have really done that. But uh, it says the, the farmers, the, uh, the herdsmen fled into the city and told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And the people came back, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave. They begged him to leave. Now, interestingly, they weren't seemingly very excited about what happened to the men. They weren't that excited about the terror of their roadway being eradicated. They, they weren't receptive of the good, but they were plenty upset about the bad. And I don't think Jesus cast the demons into the pigs to be mean or to cast judgment on the farmers. It was, it was just a sign that they had come out, that the people begged him to leave. And I can picture the disciples saying, is this going to be how this goes? Is this going to be how we're received? We're going to do great things and follow Jesus and be met with this kind of rejection? And I can picture Jesus saying, perhaps, yes, it is. If they hate me, they will hate you too, as he would go on to say later on in his life. In his life. This is kind of opposite of the storm, for in that instance, a bad situation got fixed. The storm was calmed. But in this instance, a good work went punished by rejection. And we face those things as well, too. Sometimes Jesus gives us a, a sweet encouragement, an oh, you little faith moment. And then other times, we feel empty when serving him. But even in that, he's with us. When we're rejected, when we're down, when we seem empty, we must recall that he was rejected first and that his power and authority are no less real. The negative reaction of the townspeople was a detractor from the miracle that he had done, but it did not nullify it. It didn't take it away. One bad day doesn't negate every good thing that you've received from the Lord. Keep following. Keep trusting. Finally, we see authority to forgive sins. You know, time is running short, but I will get through this. We'll go into chapter number nine. Getting into the boat, there's the boat again. He crossed over and came into his own city. And I have to think that the disciples are probably thinking, what's going to happen now? First on the boat ride over here, we almost die. We almost lose our lives in the storm. Then we're, we're cast out with, you know, with torches and pitchforks from the gatherings for doing a good thing. And they're getting back into the boat and they're thinking, what, what could be next? Well, they come to the other side. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, a paralyzed man lying on a bed. But when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, the healing is coming. 
We know the story. And it's going to be miraculous and amazing. A man bedridden, paralyzed, carried to Jesus in faith and hope for who knows how long he'd been on that bed, but his friends brought him. He would be healed, but this time the healing was different because Jesus said to the man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And we ask, why would Jesus say that? Why, why would he go to that place? I was thinking earlier of one of the other healings where Jesus healed a blind man and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who, who sinned? Was it this guy or his parents that he was caused to be born blind? That was kind of a way of thinking common in that day, that every unfortunate thing stemmed from personal sin. And we kind of think like that too, don't we? We think, this is going terribly. I'm, I'm so far behind. I can't catch a break. What have I done to deserve this? Perhaps the paralyzed man lying on that bed had those thoughts. Perhaps he had been accosted with, with those kinds of accusations, people saying, well, you know, you wouldn't be paralyzed if you hadn't fill in the blank. That's all reading between the lines. But either way, Jesus here shows, yet again, another facet of his authority by forgiving this man's sin, going right by the physical ailment to the spiritual life of this man. Jesus heals completely. He heals instantly. His, his miracles aren't surface level. They are entire. With the storm, Jesus didn't teleport the boat to the dock. No, he calmed the waves. With the demon-possessed men, he didn't send the men away, and he didn't just alleviate their symptoms, he eradicated their demons. And with this man, though he will heal him, he also cares for his whole being, body, soul, and spirit, forgiving his sins. Well, if you thought the Gentile pig farmers were upset in the last passage, they had nothing on the scribes that we read about next. Verse number three, behold, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say? Uh, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Authority, it, it keeps advancing through these passages. It keeps taking a, a, another step. An authoritative teacher is one thing. A healer is another thing. A man who controls the weather is, is unthinkable. And a man who has power over spiritual forces is unworldly. But now his authority becomes very personal because you and I may not be paralyzed or even sick. You may have never been on a boat during a storm that almost caused your certain demise. You probably don't have demons. But you know what you and I have sin. We need forgiveness. And more than just horizontal human forgiveness, we need divine forgiveness. This 
passage is really interesting. It's sort of a foreshadowing because, of course, this won't be the last run-in with the scribes and their counterparts, the Pharisees, and it won't be the last charge of blasphemy. In fact, the charge of blasphemy will ultimately be the charge that these people take up when they request, demand that Jesus be crucified. And he will ultimately be hung on a cross and, humanly speaking, executed for this supposed blasphemy. He was accused of blasphemy for forgiving sins. But what do we know about what he really went to the cross for? To forgive sins. Even in their opposition, these scribes were advancing the kingdom of God and his gospel for the one accused of wrongdoing and evil in this case, though falsely, is the same one who forgives wrongdoing and evil by his own death. Jesus did have authority to forgive sins, and he proved it in this case by saying, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he turned to the man and said, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus backed up his claim. When he calmed the storm, the storm actually stopped. When he cast out the demons, they went out of the man into the pigs. When, they, when he healed the man's body, he rose and walked home. So we know that when he forgave the man's sins, they were actually forgiven. Bernie Madoff made a run of about 40 years scamming people, but Jesus of Nazareth has been on a perfect streak for, oh, about 2,000 years, and more than that because he is from everlasting the very God who created and who can say, peace be still, the God who formed all things and can say to the demons, go, and they go, and the very God who crafted our bodies can say, rise up, and we rise up, but most of all, the very God who is holy, good, righteous, and clean can say to you and I as sinners, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And you know what happens? Our sins are forgiven. There's a cost to following Jesus. He wants your whole life, and you might say, but, but I'll mess up. I'll fall short. I, I'll stumble. And you will. You will. And we do. You will disobey. I disobey. But Jesus is there to say, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. 